the next couple months, there's going to be a number of people uh, who are going to be uh, preaching on Sundays, and, and uh, some of them will do some, of, uh, some one-off messages, and a number of people are going to be uh, giving messages from the book of Psalms uh, over the next couple months. And uh, I think that Psalms in the summer is just a, a great theme. Um, uh, the Psalms are, have been the, the prayer book for the church for many centuries. And these are prayers that have been prayed by God's people uh, throughout the ages, and they give expression to our hearts. And you'll find the whole gamut of emotions in the Psalms. You'll find Psalms of great sorrow and lament when people are down in the dumps and hurting. You'll find Psalms of thanksgiving and praise. You'll find Psalms that are celebrating God's truth in ways that are captivating and make us want to live God's ways. So the Psalms are, may, are, are given to us to shape our hearts. So I'm, I'm hoping that these Psalms are, are helpful uh, to you all this summer as we consider the different ways God calls us to call out to Him. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 3, uh, a very brief psalm, uh, a psalm of David. I'm going to read this, I'll pray, and, and uh, we'll dive in. A psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are that we can pray these words this morning, knowing that um, millions of your people have prayed these very words. Uh, during times of distress and deliverance, they've called out to you uh, and been reminded of your character and been reminded of how you, have, how you have acted on behalf of your people time and time again. And as a result, um, you've strengthened your people as they've prayed these words. And so, God, that's my prayer this morning. I pray that we would be strengthened by these words, by your Spirit, as uh, we seek to understand them and, uh, and seek to pray them this morning. So please, uh, teach us your word and guide us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I'm guessing I'm not alone here in the room of occasionally having difficulty sleeping because a lot is on your mind and troubling your heart. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's a hard time getting to sleep because so much is going on in life. Uh, that's not been my practice. Usually I actually conk out pretty fast. I tend to wake up um, you know, halfway through, having had a solid you know, three or four hours, and then wide awake, thinking about things that are troubling my mind. Maybe you've had that experience too. I think all of us, from, from one time or another, have had that experience of having things that distress us and have made it difficult to rest and find sleep. Um, in this psalm, King David is writing these words in the midst of distress. 
And it seems there's even a reason that he's writing. I think I'm kind of reading into this a little bit, but I, I think he's praying these because he wants to sleep. <laughs> and so I, I've really absorbed this psalm as uh, my prayer when I'm distressed and want to sleep. And I hope you find it beneficial. Um, we're going to go through this psalm really in, in three parts. And you'll notice as you read through, um, three times you see the word selah. Um, now, the commentators aren't positive what this word means. Most commentators think it's a, a musical interlude. So these psalms are, are songs, prayers that are songs. And, and most people think that Selah is an indication for the people that are singing it or people that are playing instruments to pause. Take a breath. Take a rest. And I think the psalmist has built this psalm around these three Selahs because there's three key movements in this psalm. And so he prays a chunk and then takes a breath and then moves on. And so we're going to walk through this sermon around those three movements. And the first one in the psalm, we're I'm titling, I got trouble. The psalmist is saying, I got trouble. I got things that are distressing me, things that are troubling me. David begins, and you could almost hear him beginning this psalm with a sigh. You know, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. I got trouble. Well, let's seek to understand the trouble that David has. Uh, first, uh, David is indicating his troubles are numerous. He says, how many are my foes? You know, plural. There's many foes. Now, at the beginning of this psalm, there's a little uh, kind of tagline there that David wrote this psalm when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. This is later on in David's life, his He's had many children, um, they are adults, and one of his own children has turned against him. Um, Absalom has now uh, gained support from people, even some of his advisors, and they've turned against David. And at this point, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16, you can read the account, Absalom has formed a band uh, of, 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 of men, and they are marching on Jerusalem. And David sees them coming and is contemplating what to do. He says, how many are my foes? Now, I guarantee none of us here have had this very experience of being marched upon by a son who wants to kill you. At least I hope you haven't had that. Um, but we all know what it is like to feel that we have many troubles. And the word here um, for foes kind of has the connotation of oppressors who are pressing, almost like a snake, you know, kind of coiling around and constricting. That's the image here, that there are many foes pressing in. Now, you probably know what that's like to be dealing with one issue in life. Maybe it's a financial shortfall. Then all of a sudden, a health issue gets piled on top. Or maybe a, a relationship issue. And you have multiple issues pressing in. And that's when things really start to become troubling. It's one thing to be dealing with a trouble on one front. Now you have trouble on multiple fronts. That's what David's saying. I have many foes, and they are pressing in. Now, this psalm, I think, recognizes reality. And it's a reality that 
I wish was not true, but it is. And that is, in life, we will have trouble. Even those who are fully following God's instructions will have trouble. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Trouble, distress, and opposition are a normal part of life in a broken world, even for those who love God. So if you've, held, if you've had that feeling of troubles pressing in on you, it doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean you're an anomaly. It means you're part of this broken world. Troubles are numerous for David. Troubles are numerous for us. Secondly, troubles are multiplying. David says, how many rise up against me? Uh, another translation, the ESV says um, that, my, that they are rising up against me. That, that the, those that march on Jerusalem, the number is growing. And if you read the account, that's what's happening. More people are defecting from David's side to Absalom's side. The number of enemies is increasing. Troubles are growing. And again, how hard it is not only to have multiple troubles, but then to see them increase, to stack on top of one another. You think you're beginning to deal with an issue, and wait, no, no, no. It's coming back around again and growing. Troubles multiplying is so distressing. For David, troubles are numerous, troubles are multiplying. But lastly, troubles are speaking to him. He says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. That there's a message that David is hearing in the middle of his troubles. That his enemies are saying to him, you're not getting out of this one. You trust in God. Why? He's not going to deliver you from this. His troubles are speaking a message. And as David fled from Jerusalem, I mean, these very words were actually being shouted to him. Um, there's one enemy in particular. Uh, if, you, if you look at 2 Samuel 16, verses 7 through 8, uh, there's a man named uh, Shimei. And he's yelling at David and his troops as they leave Jerusalem. Because David has to escape. He has to flee the city. And as he's leaving, this guy is taunting him. And these are the words that he says to him. Get out. Get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you reigned. The Lord has handed over the kingdom to Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Now, in this account here, Shimei is playing the role of the accuser. He's accusing David of his wrongdoing and saying, that's why this is happening to you, and therefore God will not deliver you. Now, some of what this guy said was true. David was a warrior. He was a man of blood. And beyond being a warrior, he was a murderer. David had taken innocent life. Some of what this guy said was true, but his conclusion was not true. This guy's conclusion was that since David was a man of blood, God had turned his back on him, that God would not deliver him. See, every single one of us in the midst of trouble also has a similar thing going on. Whether we know it or not, the scriptures tell us that we live in a world that there is more than just flesh and blood. There's a spiritual dimension. And our main struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the unseen realm. And the scriptures tell us that there is an evil one who is an accuser. That in the middle of our troubles, 
There are messages that he is communicating to us. Things like, you deserve this. God doesn't love you. God won't deliver you. Don't put your trust in him. And the same kind of thing is happening to us in the midst of troubles. There's always messages coming our way. And the evil one's main goal is that we would not put the full weight of our trust in God. That we would hedge our bets and look elsewhere in the midst of our distress for our solutions. This is what's happening to David. He has numerous troubles, multiplying troubles, and in his troubles, there's a message that's being spoken to him. And then we get that word, Selah. David expresses to God all that he's experiencing and feeling. Here's what's happening, God. And he takes a breath. And then there's a turn in this psalm. And it starts with the word, but. He says, I got all these troubles, but. And the second movement is, but I got God. I got trouble, but I got God. And there's a few things here that David recognizes about God. Because he consciously shifts his gaze from his troubles onto the character of God. He says here in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He first recognizes in the midst of his distress that God is my shield. God is my shield. Now the situation had not gotten any better. Absalom is still marching on Jerusalem. David's still fleeing. Um, But David's perspective is beginning to shift. He recognizes that in the middle of his trouble, he has a shield. That God himself is a shield for David. And what's interesting here is the wording. David doesn't just say, God is my shield. He says, he's my shield around me. Now, a shield protects one direction, right? Maybe a really big shield. It could do, you know, kind of a curved shield, the whole front of you. But a shield does not go all around. But David says, God, you are my shield on every side. On my front, on my back, my right, my left. On every side, I am protected by you. This phrase here is about David recognizing that even in the midst of this horrible situation, somehow he is protected by God. And the Psalms are full of this message. They're full of it. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not lack. And goes on, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even there you are with me. So God will protect us and bring us through even the valley of death. Or Psalm 121, David says, the Lord will keep you from all harm. The Lord will keep you from all harm. And if you're like me, you scratch your head a little and say, Is that, isn't that a little overblown? The Lord will keep you from all harm? Like, how, can, how can the psalmist think this? I mean, hasn't David seen godly men suffer and experience harm? Well, I think the answer is found in understanding how a shield protects. You see, a shield protects the one holding it, not by removing the person from the battle, but by absorbing the blows of the enemy in the midst of the battle. And so David's not saying that God will remove us from the circumstances of all harm. Far from it. He's saying somehow, some way, in the midst of the trouble, God absorbs the blows. That David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognized that our only protection, that our ultimate protection, can only come when God absorbs the blows of the enemy for us. 
And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was our shield. On the cross, he took on himself what should have been ours. The full weight of the consequence of our sin, he took on himself. He absorbed our sin and its consequences. So now, no ultimate harm can befall anyone whose shield is Christ. No downturn in the economy, no sickness, no attack, no sin, not even death itself can cause ultimate harm to a person who trusts in Christ. Uh, This kind of helps us understand what Paul wrote when he said, nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. David is recognizing in this turn in the psalm that though he has trouble, he has something greater. He has God who is his shield in the midst of trouble. And then he shifts. Not only is God his shield, he recognizes that God is his glory. God is his glory. See, David had experienced much glory in his lifetime. Um, after he defeated the giant Goliath, uh, as he came back into the city, it said that, that people sang his praises. It angered King Saul a lot, that people sang that uh, Saul had killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. People were you know, very appreciative of David in his, his military strength. Then after David became king, he went on to build, build Jerusalem up into a much greater city, a glorious city, a beautiful palace. Um, the nations would come and, and behold the glory of the city. David had experienced throughout his life many people giving him honor and praise. Uh, he had a lot of dignity. But when Absalom attacked, not only was David's safety threatened, so was his dignity. I mean, just think how... Um, low he must have felt, having his son betray him, turn on him, attack him, and how weak David must have seemed to those around him to have to flee the city. And it gets even worse. If you read the whole story, um, Absalom did far more to bring dishonor to his father. Um, Dig's not in session uh, for everyone, so I won't go into all the details of it, but you can read it. It's not good. Absalom didn't just want the throne. He wanted to dishonor his father. Dignity is a big deal. And when we feel dishonored, we often lash out in anger physically or with our words. But David didn't lash out. He turned to God and recognized that his dignity did not come from other people's respect, but from God who alone bestows glory. See, it was God and God alone that David counted on for his sense of worth, in the sense of honor and dignity. And he knew that in God, he was okay. So in his prayer, David looks away from his troubles, and he looks to God as his shield, and he looks to God as his glory. And then thirdly, he recognizes about God, that God is the one who will lift my head. Now this idea of David's head being lifted, it's connected with the idea of glory and dignity. Um, you know, when you're feeling low or ashamed, you know, we hang our heads. And generally, if you're watching a, a sporting event, especially like a championship game, at the end of the game, the cameras always pan first to the, 
the winning team, you see the team hugging each other, celebrating, then they pan to the, to the team who lost. And almost always, some of the team is sitting on the bench with their heads hung low and a towel over their head because they're, they're hanging their head really in shame. That's just how we express this as humans. And David is saying, um, God, you lift my head. Though I feel shame, you are lifting me. See, he's saying more, though, than that God just gives him honor and dignity. He's saying, you will publicly vindicate me one day. It's a public vindication for his head to be lifted. Others will recognize that he was in the right. That David is not taking everything into his own hands at this time. He is leaving Jerusalem, and he's entrusting um, his care into God's hands. And one day he's trusting that God will lift his head, and he will be vindicated. We can pray this too, because we will face situations in life when we are in the right, but it is not recognized. And what we do in that circumstance reveals where our trust is. If we have to always fight for our honor to be recognized, then we really aren't trusting God, who will one day reveal it to all. If Jesus is our shield and our glory, then there's a coming day when Christ's glory will be revealed to all, and those who trust in Christ will be revealed to all as being wise. Um, On that day, no one will snicker at you for your belief in Jesus. No one will think you're foolish for having given up anything to follow him. No, you'll be seen as a wise man or woman who built his or her life and eternity on Jesus Christ. Now, in prayer, David recognizes his trouble, but then he shifts and he focuses on the character of God, that God is his shield, God is his glory, and God is the one who lifts his head. And then he concludes that second movement with verse 4, To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Selah. Do you hear the confidence growing? He's confident that God hears, God cares, and God will answer. And I think he's so confident because of that second movement where he focused on God's character. He got his eyes off his troubles and onto God and who he is and what he's done. And then he takes another breath. And then he moves into this last section of the psalm. He's brought his troubles to God. He's turned his focus onto God. And now he cries out boldly for deliverance from God. I got trouble. I got God. I got deliverance. Verse 5, he says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. And I think what we have here is David saying, God's giving me deliverance in the form of sleep. Sometimes we just need a good night's sleep. And David prays this, and God answers his prayer, and God gives him sleep. Now, in our, in our uh, Western culture, uh, we almost wear lack of sleep like a, like a badge of honor. Um, you know, if someone asks you, you know, how you're doing, we usually say, busy. There's almost a, a badge of honor there. Um, you know, how, 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 how much sleep are you getting lately? Oh, man, you know. I'm getting eight, nine hours a night, a couple naps a day. No one says that. You say, oh man, I'm, I'm really worn out, burning the candle at both ends. Lack of sleep is almost a badge of honor. But that's because we idolize our, our own efforts, thinking that if we work hard enough, we can overcome any trouble. And that's foolishness in God's eyes. I love what Psalm 127.2 says. 
says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. That God does give us what we need, including rest, including sleep. Now, that doesn't mean, if you're having trouble sleeping, that you're not trusting God. What it needs is you need to ask God for rest, for sleep. Uh, Ask him for this form of deliverance. Sleep is an expression of trust. We go to sleep, and we do nothing, trusting that God does not sleep. He's the one in whose hands our security actually lies. David says, I got deliverance in the form of sleep because of the character of my God. Secondly, verse 6, David says, I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. I mean, what a statement. I will not fear, though tens of thousands come at me from every angle. David has deliverance in the form of peace. He's he's becoming free from fear through this prayer. Now, it'll crop back up again. He'll have to pray this again. It's not permanent. But as he prays this, God is delivering him from his fears. I mean, verse 1, he said, How many are my foes? Verse 6, I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me. There's been a change from verse 1 to verse 6. See, so often prayer is about God changing our perspectives and giving us peace in the midst of our circumstances that don't change. Now, God does change circumstances. He does. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he does not free us from the financial difficulty or from the relational difficulty or from the sickness. But always, 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 he is with us. And always, 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 he wants to change us And we can experience his peace, even if our circumstances don't change. David says, I have. I got peace in the midst of this. Um, There's a great quote by uh, uh, Corey Ten Boom, a famous uh, Christian woman uh, who was part of helping uh, Jews escape during the Holocaust. And uh, I love what she says about worry. She says, worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength. Carrying two days at once. It's moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Isn't that powerful? Worrying does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It's still going to happen. It empties today of its strength. David's coming to realize, I can trust God in the middle of what's happening. He's got me somehow, somehow, some way. I'll trust. So David He gets deliverance in the form of sleep. He gets deliverance in the form of peace. And then last, verses 7 and 8, David prays, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now, before we address the form of deliverance that David experiences here, I first want to address the harshness of the prayer. Um, probably most of you parents aren't teaching your kids at night as, as you go to bed, pray, break the teeth of my enemies. You know, we, 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 we don't teach our kids to pray this way, so why is David doing this? Why is he praying these harsh, harsh words? Well, we need to recognize a few things here. First, David is being honest with God about his desires. And we should be honest with, our, with God about our desires. I think all too often we're really tentative with God about what we would like to see happen, and then we end up being harsh with others. See, God knows what's going on in our heart and in our mind. 
And he wants us to express to him all that's taking place. The Psalms are very raw at times. God wants us to say what we'd like to see happen. David wants his enemies to get it. And who wouldn't in that circumstance with all that's happening to him? So David is honest with God about his desires. But secondly, he leaves justice in God's hands. He doesn't say, I'm going to go break the teeth of the wicked. He says, God, would you, would you take care of them? So God le- he leaves justice in God's hands. That's what happens as we pray honestly to God. We begin to trust him with the outcome. But there's, there's a last piece to understand here, and that is David is saying this prayer on that side of the cross. When David prays this, Jesus hasn't come yet. The cross has not yet happened. The cross changes things, including how we pray about our enemies. And when we look at the cross, we recognize we are all enemies of God, and Jesus has not given his enemies what they deserve. And so, yes, we still feel anger at our enemies, but when we look at the cross, we begin to pray prayers that Jesus taught us to pray, like, God, forgive my enemies. The cross does change how we pray about enemies. Let's look back now at the deliverance David experiences as he prays this prayer. We see that David has received deliverance in the form of confidence. At this point, David is very confident that the thing his enemies were taunting him about at the beginning is not true. He is very confident that God will, in fact, deliver him. Remember what his enemies said? God will not deliver you. By the end of the prayer, he says, that's not true. It felt very true at the beginning, but it is not true. And David is confident that he will be delivered by God. See, he recognizes that God has delivered him in the past, many times over, that God is delivering him in the present, and he will deliver him in the future. Now, that, at this point, David doesn't know if that means he'll have the kingship back. He's not even sure if that means he won't be killed. But he is confident that if he entrusts his soul to God, then he is safe, even through death. He is safe. And so he is confident in God's deliverance. In uh, Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, there's a curious line at the end of one of the stanzas. Uh, Let me read uh, the, the stanza for you. It says, And though this world with devils filled, talk about troubles, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. It's that phrase there. One little word shall fell him. And many people have wondered, what is that one little word that the Martin Luther was talking about? Um, well, in, in, he actually did identify what that word was. And it's interesting. That word was liar. Devil, you lie, was his phrase. That Martin Luther had come to know that the evil one's accusation is a lie. What was was being spoken to David was ultimately a lie. That God would deliver him, God did love him, God was on his side. And especially during trouble, our enemy tries to dissuade us from trust in God. 
with messages like, God will not deliver you, God is not good, you are not safe, you are not loved, God can't be trusted. But after in prayer we look to Christ who shielded us in his death, who shares his glory with us, who lifts our heads, we can answer confidently, that's a lie. This trouble, the message that's coming to me in the midst of this trouble is a lie. I am safe, I am secure, I am loved, God will deliver me. In this life, we will all face distress. The question is, to whom will we turn for deliverance in the midst of our distress? And I urge you to turn to Jesus. Tell him your distress. Turn your focus onto him, who he is, what he's done for you. Then ask boldly for deliverance in the form of sleep, peace, and confidence. Let's pray.